it's amazing to me how much people just assume that, well, yes, we're monogamous now. Well, what does that actually mean? Does that mean that you can like find other people attractive even if you don't do anything about it? Does it mean you can masturbate? <laughs> does it mean you can uh, kiss other people? Does it mean you can um, go to cuddle parties? All these sorts of things where, well, different people do monogamy in different ways and um, they can, it, it's not this one size fits all thing. That was Amy Guerin, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 163. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. We'll be diving into the full episode in a few minutes, but before that, I have three quick things that I want to share with you. The first is the promise that my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. That's it. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You're great, and we're all just doing the best we can. That's what I believe. The next thing I want to share is a reminder that this is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we talk about things like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and pretty much everything in between. My personal hope is that these conversations make you feel less alone, while also challenging you to consider a new perspective from someone whose lived experiences might be different from your own. I think that's super important. And then lastly, the last thing that I want to share before we get to today's episode is that you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions on this podcast, because these honest conversations are 100% listener funded. They're made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. This kind of tangible financial support, that's what allows me to make the show. And it also pays everyone involved in making Real Talk Radio. That's me, my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all of my guests, and a few months ago, our community met the funding goal to make that happen. So all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for their time, with higher rates always being paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or to have a listener-funded show for that matter, I guess, um, but I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world of honest conversations where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series. That's where I share my real life in real time. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for live events and retreats. Sometimes the live events and retreats actually get sold out within the Patreon community. So if you're interested in that, that is a good place to be. Also, 5% of each season's profit is donated to a different social justice organization, with past donations going to places like Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood, so you can feel good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. 
If you go over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, that's where we do our live Google Hangouts. And oh my gosh, those are so much fun. Those are perhaps one of my favorite things uh, that we do in the Patreon community. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Amy Guerin. Amy is a journalist based in Boulder, Colorado, and she's the author of Stepping Off the Relationship Escalator, Uncommon Love and Life, a research-based book about all kinds of unconventional intimate relationships. It covers consensual non-monogamy, solohood, and lots more. For several years, Amy also wrote, under the pen name Aggie Says, the blog solopoly.net about being polyamorous without living with or marrying any partners and without needing anyone to be primary or secondary. In this episode, Amy talks about the relationship escalator, what it is, why people ride it, and why many folks may not have noticed it before. She shares some of the more common ways that people choose to step off the escalator, including personal stories from her own life and relationships, most notably with her dear friend and former spouse. We talk about couple privilege, the stigma of being single, how to better negotiate monogamy if that's your chosen relationship style, and what we can all do to help make the world a safer, friendlier place for all kinds of love. Amy's book has been so helpful and impactful for me personally, and I'm really thrilled to share this conversation with you as well as a 20% discount code that Amy has generously provided for anyone who's interested in buying her book. If you want to take advantage of that, just go to offescalator.com. That's her website, offescalator.com, and enter the code Nicole at checkout to save 20%. In the meantime, I hope you get a lot from this episode. I know that I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this conversation over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are good to go. Amy, welcome to the show. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for uh, having me. I'm so excited. I would love to start um, by having you drop me into your real life. Tell me how you spent the first, I don't know, hour or two of your day today. Oh, um, sitting on my couch, um, having my first meeting of the day, which is always with my cat, Wasabi, who is a a black domestic short hair who runs my life, actually. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm extremely well managed here. Um, So sitting there and then... uh, saying good morning to both my sweethearts and uh, a couple of my dear friends and uh, looking over my crazy schedule right now and organizing my day. And that usually starts around 5 a.m. I get up early. Oh, yeah, early. So particularly crazy Mm -hmm. schedule lately because why? Buying a house. And this is no small thing uh, given two things. I am a self-employed single woman in my 50s, and I live in Boulder, Colorado, and the housing market around here is crazy. Um, But I found a really good option, and I have a really good team of people, and I've got the resources, so I'm going for it. Oh, well, congrats. That's exciting. Yeah, it is. Thank you. This is the biggest thing I've ever done financially, but I'm, you know, because I have a good group of people around me, I'm not feeling a lot of anxiety about it. 
So that's good. Yeah. I feel like that's often undervalued, like having a good team, whatever. I mean, that means different things, I think, in different situations. But being able to say, here's the support that I need, or here's the skills that I don't quite have that I want someone else, you know, here that has those things, being able to assemble the support that you need is awesome. Yeah, it is. And also just really knowing who to turn to for what. I know who I can turn to for emotional support. I know who I can turn to to kind of talk things through. Plus, I've got, you know, the realtor, the mortgage guy and all that. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah. So the reason that I first reached out to have you on the show is because I absolutely devoured your book, Stepping Off the Relationship Escalator. And I mean, I felt like I was reading it and highlighting it and texting friends about it and just like wanted to talk about it so much. And I realized, oh, actually, I should just talk to you about it. <laughs> it's your book. Um, I'm so I'm so happy to hear that. Uh, you know, I, I really love how people are really getting enthusiastic about this book. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I feel really grateful to be able to do a deep dive into this topic, which selfishly is of huge interest to me. And as I told you before we started recording, I found you through Dedeker Winston, who was on the show last year. And I found so many great resources and and people and stuff from her and her episode was really popular. So getting to, you know, continue on a similar thread, but taking it in a different direction feels exciting. So to start us off, maybe you can share a bit of the backstory of the why and how of writing this book. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I'm a journalist and a writer and editor, and basically, I've turned a personality flaw into a career. I can't just I can't stop asking questions. I never got past that, you know, four year old phase of why, why, why. And in addition to that, I have been practicing unconventional relationships for quite a long time, 20-ish years or so. Not that anybody ever expected me to be normal, but um, I've been poly uh, for like forever. And I also prefer not to live with any intimate partners. So that's the solo approach to, to relationships, not merging your life with anybody. And that's kind of a twofer for freaking people out. And it's kind of hard to explain to a lot of people. So I got involved with a lot of different online communities um, about various kinds of unconventional relationships, not just polyamory. And I learned that, wow, people face a lot of issues because there is all this um, subtext about how relationships are supposed to work in the society. And it governs so many people's lives and huge decisions. But in a way, it's kind of invisible. It's so overarching that people can't see it a lot of the times and don't really talk about it. And they just kind of go on autopilot thinking, oh, this is what we're supposed to do next, right? So I decided to do a book about a concept that I'd heard about when I lived in Oakland around, uh, I lived there 2009 to 2012. And I heard people using this phrase, the relationship escalator. And that's where I picked it up from. And I said, okay, well, um, why don't we kind of do a book about that and how people are not doing that. And I thought I was going to make it really easy for myself being a journalist. I said, okay, I'll put up this survey and I will, um, you know, ask people basically, are your relationships unconventional? And if so, how? Well, it was a little more detailed than that, but you know, I, I did that, put it up there and I thought, okay, this is going to be easy. I'll get over a few months, maybe, you know, a couple hundred responses. I'll pick out from that a, dozen or so people to interview and boom, I'll get this thing out in six months. I had 300 responses in the first week. 
Hmm. Um, and people were writing the equivalent of like 2,000 to 2,500 word essays in their survey responses. And I was getting, you know, people were finding this survey all over the place. I put up a total of about five or six posts in various forums related to various things about um, relationships, both conventional and unconventional. And people were passing this link around all over the place. It was amazing. And a lot of people were reading an article that I had published on a blog that I used to write about, you know, writing the relationship escalator or not. Basically, what is it? And places like CNN started linking to that. And I'm like, whoa, okay. And then, you know, the journalist in in me is like, that's a market opportunity. And, um, you know, because I'm a self-employed person. Anyway, uh, long story short, uh, I was so floored by the response that I decided to take a totally different uh, tack on it. And I really didn't deep dive into all the qualitative data that I got through this survey. It took me about four years altogether to analyze analyze what was about 1,500 responses. And I had to cut it off at that point because that's all the data I could manage. It was insane. Um, So I kind of became an accidental social scientist. And uh, so what is in this book? reflects what my 1,500 co-authors had to say. Mm, I love that so much. Also, I love that this is going to take me six months. Oh, wait, four years later, (laughs) there's a lot more data here to sift through. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But that's how these projects go sometimes. And and I really felt that it warranted that level of time and attention uh, because this is really um, life-changing to a lot of people. It's basic information. It's kind of context that you don't realize it's, it's like, yo fish, there's this thing called water. You might want to think about it. And, um, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, Oh my God, I hadn't realized how much this set of social norms was affecting all the things in my life. And if I think consciously about it, then I can make better decisions in my relationships, no matter what kind of relationship you want to have. Even if the traditional relationship escalator is totally what you want, being able to think about it clearly and discuss it rather than just go on autopilot is probably going to give you better results. Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciated about your book was, I mean, obviously you were you're like putting forth, you know, a lot of different unconventional relationship styles and and all of that. And yet you're not demonizing anyone's choices, right? Like it's not a, this is why you should never have a relationship that, you know, follows the social norms or anything like that. And I, I think that it makes the work so much more accessible and approachable to folks, like you said, like maybe, a, you know, more traditional relationship or like, I don't know what terminology we want to use, but an escalator relationship as we'll define, you know, shortly, maybe that is the right fit for someone and monogamy is the right fit and all of these things. It doesn't mean that it's not worth asking these questions. I think there's a huge difference between like consciously choosing something on purpose than defaulting into it just because it's what we're quote supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And also it's useful because, and I didn't realize this until I actually sat down and analyzed the data from, from this survey. A lot of people don't really realize all the things that are actually part of the relationship escalator. It's not just monogamy. It's not just living together. There's, there's a whole bunch of other hallmarks of it that we take for granted. For instance, the idea that um, of hierarchy, that's actually very important on the relationship escalator, that you're supposed to have one and only one intimate partner. And that person is supposed to be the most important person in your life. 
with the exception of kids, young kids that you might be raising or, you know, adults that you're, you know, elders that you're caring for or, or disabled people that you're caring for, they are supposed to be your top consideration in almost every choice you make. And you're supposed to put them ahead of everybody else. Well, that has a lot of implications. Like, um, what role do friendships really play in your life? A lot of people focus so much on their escalator relationship that they kind of let their friendships fall aside. And that has predictable results when the shit hits the fan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think this is a good time for you to go into more detail um, and maybe define what uh, the relationship escalator is. Okay, great. Um, Well, basically, the relationship escalator is a bundle of social norms uh, that define how intimate relationships, especially relationships that include sexual and romantic intimacy, are supposed to look how they're supposed to work. And uh, this is something that we're in 21st century Western society uh, and in a lot of other parts of the world as well. This is not just the way we think it's supposed to work, but it is assumed to be the only good, healthy, serious, valid approach to having intimate relationships. It's privileged in that way. Relationships that are on the escalator get a lot of recognition. They get a lot of other um, incentives too. For instance, legal marriage is essentially institutionalized privilege for escalator relationships. And um, you get a lot of, you know, government, legal, financial, other incentives, you know, if you get legally married. And and that's okay in that, um, well, institutionalized privilege isn't okay. But the relationship escalator is okay if it genuinely works for you. And it does genuinely work for a lot of people. It is popular for a reason. It really does work for a lot of people. It's not the only game in town. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that since it's such a powerful bundle of social norms, if you step off that escalator in any significant way, sometimes even if you even just tell people you're considering this, or even if you, you're you just thinking about it, all of a sudden, a lot of stress comes into the picture because people start wondering what's wrong with you. Why don't you want this thing that everybody else wants? Um, You can't do commitment uh, or maybe you're not really a a true adult or something about you is dangerous. People pathologize a lot of steps off the escalator. And this has nothing to do with sexual orientation or gender identity. This is just about the structure of how you do your relationships. For instance, if you don't want to live with any partners, A lot of people will say, well, when are you going to grow up and settle down? Hey, I'm sorry. I'm 52 and I'm buying a house right Mm -hmm. now. I'm growing up. I'm settled down. I'm just not, I don't want to do that with an intimate partner in my space, being a financial partner. I know from experience that that is not the best way for me to do my relationships. But when you're off the escalator, um, a lot of times people don't know how to interact with you. What do they do with that plus one invitation if you're poly and part of a triad, you know, that, that freaks people out? What do you do at the holidays? Who do you invite to a dinner party? It, it gets very complicated in a lot of unexpected ways. Um, so that's what this is. And that is the scope of how deeply it reaches into people's lives and in their psyche. I mean, a lot of times 
people even just in their own heads. If they if the escalator isn't working for them, or if they think they made something want something else, people all the time tell me, "What's wrong with me? I'm doing love wrong, or I want to do love wrong." I, it breaks my heart. Yeah. So that's why I, I wanted to put this book out there. If you feel like you're doing love wrong, okay, you're not, and you're not alone. Well, maybe you are, because there are fucked up people out there. But, <laughs> but for the most part, just because you want to try something different doesn't mean you're doing it yeah. wrong. So can you give, and I know you do this in the book too, but can you give the kind of quintessential example of like, this is what, these are the steps that a relationship escalator, you know, style relationship follows? Okay. Well, um, generally it works like this. Uh, you meet someone. Now you think they're hot. You start dating. You start having sex. You fall in love. You uh, you know start viewing each other as a couple, not so much as individuals anymore. You start making future plans. You move in together. You get married, and then you know kids, whatever, until death do you part. Um, it's supposed to last until somebody dies, which is very interesting. If you think about it, the only way you know if you've done the escalator right is if one of you dies. So, um, and you don't fuck anybody else along the way. Um, other than that, you know, it's it, that's a successful relationship. And actually, they really can be successful relationships in terms of being good for the people involved in them. Um, but that's what it looks like. Those are the steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk about? I mean, because I, I think this idea of, uh, you meet and then, you know, maybe you stop dating other people and it becomes right exclusive and you move in together and you get married, right. All those things that you just mentioned, I feel like people mm-hmm. would say, Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Like that's how relationships work. Can you share maybe some of the things that folks may not have noticed are like escalator type behaviors? Okay. The, um, the idea that a relationship is supposed to be always and forever, that if it's, that's not the intent that it's not a serious relationship or it's not real. And that if you've uh, progressed to the point of considering yourselves couple, you know, a couple, and you've been doing that for a little while, I don't know, a few months or so, and then it doesn't really work out, well, that's a failed relationship. See, there's a lot of value judgment in those things. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people take it for granted that um, longevity, that this always and forever thing, or that um, that it has to be, you know, permanent. That you are going to be a couple. You're going to be in each other's in- lives in this way, and you're not supposed to transition that relationship or go through times where maybe you, you spend weeks or months or years apart and then come back into each other's lives. Well, again, that's by escalator logic. That's broken. That's not a real relationship. That's not serious. But have you ever had? a brief romance that changed your life or somebody that you love that comes back into your life circling around like a comet um, from time to time and they're very meaningful to you, you know, those things count and they matter. Or, um, or what about people who are on the uh, asexual spectrum? Um, you know, sex just isn't their thing. They, they, that's not the most important kind of intimacy for them. Does that mean that their love doesn't count? I think they would, you know, have something to say about mm-hmm. that. 
Yeah. And, you know, even potentially the opposite of that, of just sort of the languaging that we use, you know, around relationships that don't meet the sort of escalator benchmarks of, oh, we're just friends or, oh, it's just sex, right? This idea of, well, if it's not all of these things, then it's not as important. Whereas like I look at my friendships and my deepest friendships have outlasted at this point every romantic relationship that I have had, right? And so not to discount the importance of those. And also there are connections that might be, you know, mostly sexual or sex and friendship or, you know, but just to say, oh, it's just sex. It's not serious. Like, I don't know. There's like something in the languaging that we use that lives like what you said Mm -hmm. before speaks to that like hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. There's the diminutive just. And, uh, you know, as an editor, I'm keenly aware of those sorts of things. There are lots of little language cues and that's just part of how the relationship escalator norms get enforced and also how they stigmatize people and really hurt people in a lot of ways too. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, you know, an example from your own life of either being on the escalator and like you said figuring out maybe it doesn't work for you or any kind of stories that you want to share about transitions that you've made on or off? Okay, uh let me tell you about Tom. Tom is awesome. Uh I've known Tom for 30 years this year and he and I met just as I was uh, graduating college and uh, we fell for each other and it was great. Actually, my best friend who was his former uh, live-in partner was, was uh, uh, his former girlfriend was the one who introduced us. Thanks, Stacy. Anyway, so we went to, uh, you know, we're dating and then we started living together and we kind of defaulted to monogamy. You know, we re- didn't really discuss it. We just, yeah, this is what you do, Right. I'm your girlfriend now, right? That's how it works, right? And then we lived together for a while and we moved from the East Coast to Colorado, which by the way is so much better. Sorry, Jersey, but yeah, he just didn't do it for me. And then um, after we were out here for a few years, we got married. We bought a house together. We um, you know, did the, the married monogamous thing and the relationship just got more and more difficult in a lot of ways. Um, we were getting to be really irritable with each other. There were a lot of, you know, misunderstandings and just just about life stuff, not even about things like monogamy or whatever. And then I got in touch with, uh, a, or we reached out to me, an old friend from high school, and we started talking and we kind of fell for each other. And, you know, I as thrilled as I was to have this new romantic connection with somebody, I was devastated because I'm a really shitty liar. And especially (laughs) the last person I can lie to is Tom. He reads me like a book. He knows me so well. And um, I'd I'd started having a a relationship that was clandestine. I did not disclose it. I mean, yeah, technically I was cheating. I was having an affair and I I hated it. And I, so I started you know, I wasn't even googling around because this is how long ago that was. Do you remember something called Alta Vista? Yeah, it was pre-Google. Yeah, so that's where looking around for options for uh, non-monogamy, I found the word polyamory for the first time. And a word is a very powerful thing, especially in the age of the internet. Boom! I was off like a shot. Uh, you know, j- just checking out everything I could learn about polyamory. Long story short, you know. 
Tom and I decided to be polyamorous. Yeah, there was a lot of drama in the meantime there, but it all worked out well. And that worked well for us. I mean, I discovered that this was not his first experience with something other than monogamy, something that I hadn't really known before. So that was that was really interesting to learn more than a decade into our relationship. Being poly was good for us in terms of it really gave us a lot of communication skills and forced us to be really honest with ourselves and others. And that was good because um, about 2008, we decided, yeah, this married, living together, cohabiting thing, you know, it's not really working for either of us. So, like, let's not do that anymore. So we got unmarried. And um, and again, yeah, that wasn't necessarily an easy process, but it wasn't as hard as what a lot of people go through. And part of that was because of all the honesty and communication we had gone through with ourselves and others through the experience of, of being poly. And uh, he's still one of the very closest people in my life. He's remained one of my very closest people. I talk to him every day. I see him most days. He lives a couple of miles from me. And, you know, he's going to be probably my neighbor in the new house that I'm buying. So, and now that you think of it, we should have done that in the first place because we sucked at the married and living together things. But, you know, living near each other and being in each other's lives, it's awesome. It's one of the most intimate relationships I, I have ever had. I can't think of anybody who knows me better. And, Sex has not been a part of this relationship for well over a decade at this point. I still count that as an, a deeply meaningful, intimate relationship. And, you know, I'd take a bullet for the guy. But by a lot of people's reckonings, this is a failed relationship. Yeah. Oh, there's so much in there that personally gives me a lot of comfort. Um, my husband and I are going through an uncoupling process right now as well. Mm -hmm. And just hearing someone talk about a relationship transition has been, you know, that like this has been successful for you is, I mean, I guess successful might even not even be the right word because if we're not viewing things as success or failure, but just the fact that you transitioned into a different style of relationship with this same person and that that continues to be fulfilling in a different way gives me a lot of hope. It's not that it just continues to be fulfilling. It works so much yeah. better. Like I said, this is what we should have done in the first place, but we didn't even know it was an option. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I can resonate with that a lot. Do you feel like there was anything in particular that helped you when you were making that transition to, as you said, get unmarried? Having really great friends. I've always had great friends um, and I've always been the kind of person to spend a lot of time with them, talk to them, be there for them. And that's just who I am. I, you know, don't, ignore my friends when I get involved with romantic relationships. And they were really there for me. I mean, in particular, um, I just felt like I needed to be somewhere else for a few months while we went through the process of, of getting unmarried. So I just wanted to be out of Boulder for a little while. And I um, contacted my friend, Susan, who lives in the Bay Area. And uh, well, actually, no, I reached out on Twitter come to think of it. And I said to the people that I, I used Twitter at the time, I don't really use it that much now. And I said, I want to go somewhere for a few months where I don't have to have a car. And, uh, you know, it's, I could rent a place for a few months for a reasonable rate and listen to a few other criteria. And Susan popped up and said, I have a room for you to rent in Oakland. And so I went out there and being around her was one of the best things she gave me the best. She's a real early bird like me. And I would start every day with a great big hug from Susan. 
And um, that was such a good support to me through that time. And it was originally just going to be a few months. You know, I ended up staying there for about three years and uh, and it was a good time in my life. But it really cemented for me the value of um, there's nothing just about friendship. For me, that's a core connection. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that as well. So I'd love to talk about some of the ways that people step off the relationship escalator, because I think, I mean, and obviously we can continue to talk about, you know, monogamy, non-monogamy, and I think that's probably one of the things that would come to mind first, but I'm interested in hearing some of the other, either things that were brought up as responses to your survey or specific things that, um, like ways that you have continued to step off the relationship escalator. Okay. Well, first of all, being a solo poly person, I'm a twofer for freaking people out. <laughs> Actually, I'm a threefer because I also practice egalitarian polyamory. I don't do hierarchy. I know a lot of people say, well, who's your primary partner? It's like, no, I don't have one. I don't even say my primary partner is me because that feels like kind of a sock puppet kind of thing. You know, like, well, somebody has to be primary and if nobody else is going to do it, it's going to be me. No, fuck that shit. I'm just me and I have relationships with people and we figure it all out with rank. Nobody has to be primary or secondary. So that's three ways. I, I don't do monogamy. You know, I don't do exclusive relationships. I, I don't want to merge the infrastructure of my life or my identity with a partner. So I'm solo and I'm egalitarian. I, I don't do the hierarchy. That is part of the escalator that we talked about. So right there in myself, I'm, I've, stepped off from the three biggest things that people usually think about. But other ways that people step off the relationship escalator is that sex and or romance are not core aspects of how the kind of intimacy that matters to them in an intimate relationship. It's not necessarily what makes it. You don't even necessarily have to be asexual or aromantic for that to be true. For instance, there are plenty of people who, um, you know, don't have a sexual connection with their partner. Maybe they did at one time and it kind of faded. Yeah. Hello. Am I describing like 90% of marriages <laughs> that happen at one point, but that doesn't mean they're not intimate and that doesn't mean the love isn't still there and isn't real. And uh, so having a, an intimate relationship where sex and or romance is not a part of it or not an important part of it. Um, that's another way to, to set it off. It, and if you want to know that something's on the escalator, you kind of look for that disturbance in the force. You know, it, it's like if you if you imagine it happening, um, like uh, somebody says, I got this great partner. They're, they're really awesome. I'm going to want to marry them. And we don't want to have sex. There's this disturbance in the force. What's wrong with mm-hmm. you? you know? And then the other one, um, the other big escalator hallmark is that always and forever thing um, that uh, People have to be in your life in a constant and consistent way, and that that is not supposed to change. But plenty of people have relationships that change all the time. There you go. I hit four out of five uh, you know, with my with my relationships, especially with with my former spouse. Yeah, that's that's four things that that I unchecked from the relationship escalator box. But yeah, sorry, I, I love sex and romance, so I'm not going to uncheck that. Yeah, one. I mean, definitely same. So I'm with you on that. To, to be fair, I actually love them so much that I think that will dictate what I do differently <laughs> in future relationships. But I've been thinking, so like ever since reading your book and sort of th- just starting to think about the escalator relationship and 
kind of stepping back from the social script a little bit and just trying to pay more attention and to notice of, oh, do I actually want this thing, you know, like any specific element of a relationship, or do I have just been assuming that that's what has to happen? Like one of the things I'll give a specific example. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we're going through this uncoupling process, we're still sharing a home that's going to change soon, but I moved into the guest room a couple months ago. And Mm -hmm. it's the first time almost in my adult life that that for any significant period of time that I haven't shared a bed with someone. And Mm. it's awesome. Like I'm sleeping better. I have my own space. Like, and, and so anyone who has slept in their own bed for a long time might be like, well, duh, girl, of course. But for me, it's really new. And it got me thinking of, huh, if I do have a romantic and sexual partnership where we choose to cohabitate and have separate bedrooms. Like that's something that I know people would think is strange, right? And uh, it was funny. I wrote about this in one of my weekly emails earlier, about a month ago, and the responses that I got from people either who really wanted to do that or who did have separate bedrooms but did it but didn't tell any of their friends. There was just so many different responses of people just on this one tiny issue of sharing a bed or not sharing a bed. People were like, oh my gosh, you know, this resonates with me because, and it made me realize, huh, this is just one tiny element of a relationship that I never really thought to question. And here it is like opening up this huge discussion for folks. It it is a big deal. By the way, that that can vary regionally. I was really surprised for the time that I lived in the Bay Area. You know how high real estate prices and rents are in the Bay Area. And I knew so many couples and not all of whom were non-monogamous who, you know, forked out the extra money to have a two bedroom place. Hmm in the Bay Area, because it was important for them each to have their own space and they didn't always spend every night together. That was common in a lot of social circles from like 2009, 2012s, you know, at the time I was there, probably still is common. Um, and that it, it was interesting because that shows how powerful social permission can be. Once you start seeing examples of people doing something differently, it gives you a sentence of permission that you can consider that for yourself, even if you don't want to do it. Just knowing that it's out there that people are doing it um, can make a big difference. And it, it happens especially strongly in your local area with people that you see every day who you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- that idea of it acting as a permission slip that, and even if it's not that specific thing, right? Like maybe it's not the bedroom issue or the sharing beds issue or not, but just hearing about someone doing something maybe potentially differently in their relationship can open up the, oh, there's this other element of my relationship that's less conventional. Like maybe that's okay, right? Just starting to realize like, I think for virtually anything, you're not going to be the only one who wants that or feels that way or is struggling with that thing. And yeah, just to start like having more conversations around that kind of stuff. And maybe having separate bedrooms isn't like a, or having the same bedroom isn't a clear mark of an escalator relationship, but I, I feel like it falls under the same bucket as like a small example of things that a lot of folks just do without thinking about it. Yeah, well, and also the escalator is not one size fits right. all. I mean, there is a lot of variation in in it. Uh, you know, I don't want to paint the escalator as this uh, monolithic thing that everybody does the same way. I mean, as as you noted, there there are lots of different ways that people do it. You know, there are lots of people who are in escalator relationships who you know aren't socially joined at the hip. They don't necessarily need to do absolutely everything with their partner. But some people do. Mm -hmm. That's their preference for how they they tend to handle it. Yeah, I've been thinking about the hierarchy thing, too, especially as it relates to, you know, a romantic partner and 
friendship that, you know, in cohabitating with a partner, you know, if I went through a period of time where let's say one of my really close friends needed something and wanted me to move in with them or any of like that would be seen again as like socially strange. Yeah, it is. And um, it, it's unfortunate because we need as much support as we can get, especially right now. I mean, you know, I live in the U S and the, the infrastructure, the social infrastructure here is going to hell. For people who aren't married, who don't have adult children, and and where all those people are happen to be able-bodied, mentally healthy, and have a good enough connection to you and enough resources that they are willing and able to help you if you if you need help. Wow! If you end up in hard circumstances like a major illness or a job loss or something like that, it can be pretty rough. We need all the support we can get. And so many points in my life, my friends have pulled me through. I've pulled my my friends through. I dedicated my book to my dear friend, Michael. And uh, he died a couple of years ago, mainly because he was black, blind, and poor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this idea that we need all the support we can get, I think that's, yeah, that feels very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that, there are so many opportunities for people to connect in, in various kinds of ways that can be very meaningful and helpful. And lighter, less intense connections are valuable too. They're all part of your, your potential support network. And, and there are lots of ways we can be good to each other. And I just don't see the point in cutting off options for mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I mean, and there's so much in what you're speaking to that's this idea that you really can run your relationships however you want to. Yes, you can if you know you have options and if you are willing and able to have conversations that might seem unromantic, awkward, or scary. That's where it really, you know, kind of goes off the rails for a lot of people. For instance, I see over and over in and you know, in my life and in you know, various online discussion forums, people saying things like Oh my God, I, I want to do something different in my relationship. Maybe I, I you know, don't want to be monogamous or I'm not interested in having sex with my partner anymore, or, or uh, maybe I want to have my own bedroom or something. And they go through all this angst because they are absolutely certain that's going to be a deal breaker for this relationship. They're scared to even talk about it. And um, what I'm encouraging people to do is, you know, have those kinds of conversations and have them if you can, early in a relationship so that the stakes are lower. And, you know, if you can say where you're at now and leave the door open, I was like, okay, this is how we want to do it for now. Can we renegotiate about this later on? And um, especially with non-monogamy, God, so many people who have transitioned from monogamous relationships to non-monogamous ones of various kinds. There's lots of ways to do it. Polyamory isn't just the only way that is said they really wished things would have been a lot easier if they had had the conversation up front with their partner that can we leave this option open to talk about it later, mm-hmm. even if we don't want to do it now? Because after, like, you know, five, 10, 20 years of a monogamous escalator relationship, yeah, I can understand why some people feel really hurt and betrayed that you're kind of bringing this up out of the blue. Put it on the table and say, okay, so we're not going to do that now, but if we want, want to talk about it later, we will. Just that simple little thing can save people so much grief. Yeah. And, uh, 
and and so much um, anger and betrayal. I mean, and I also think that you don't know what you don't know, right? So, you know, maybe if it, if using the example that you just gave, you know, if someone's aware of the fact that non-monogamy might be something that they're interested in the future and they have the, you know, sort of they they know that about themselves and they have the wherewithal and the ability to have that conversation, I can definitely see why that would make it easier to have the conversation earlier in the relationship. And also, like, maybe you don't know, right, at the beginning that that's something, you know, I think about how much my needs and desires and mostly just like self-awareness and the ability to advocate for myself in, you know, these types of relationships has changed in the last, I don't know, five to seven years that I just, things that I know now I didn't know then, right? So even, you know, if if we're making, like you said, the always and forever promises, like even if that is something that resonates with, with folks in terms of their relationship style, sort of this idea that we're probably going to grow and change and it might not be in specifically the area of monogamy or not, but I I mean, preferences change the things you want, right? Like your needs and desires out of a relationship, just like leaving room for growth in general, I think is really important. Yeah. But that's what exactly what is so profoundly scary to a lot of people. Growth and change are really scary. Um, People want to be in intimate relationships, however, that they construe intimacy because we're vulnerable. Hmm. You know, I mean, you share in those relationships, the most vulnerable parts of your lives, and you're also encouraged by social norms to sink all your resources into that relationship. It has to become the foundation of your, your housing, your finances, your sense of family, um, your, your future, your status in society, everything rides on that relationship. The thought of changing that is tears people's worlds apart. And so there's a lot of, you know, you want to find a safe haven, this one person that you can basically hang the rest of your life on or a big part of your life on, and then you don't have to worry about it. Set it and forget it. But the problem is people change. I mean, that's what people do. We all do. You're not the same person that you were when you were three or 13 or or 20. And um, I'm certainly not the same person that I was even a decade ago. I've grown and changed a lot, but if we are make it, if we get very invested in something to the, and it doesn't have to just be a relationship. It can be a job. It can be living in a certain city, playing a certain role. If you get really invested in that, and that is who you are, somebody else threatening to change, it feels like they're trying to kill you. Mm-hmm. And, um, so you want you want this for all the good stuff, but by being so vulnerable, you've set yourself up for a lot of terror if anything changes. This is why I personally try to focus on um, resilience, personal resilience in all parts of my life, including how I do relationships. This is why when I, especially when I start new romantic relationships or friendships that might feel like they're getting kind of deep, I go very, very slowly with it. And I just try to, get to know the person for who they are and not lose track of who I am and just see what emerges over time, how we might be compatible because you really don't know from the beginning what type of relationship might work best for you. I had no idea that Tom and I would be really great as best friends and support systems and, and uh, you know, anchor partners in a lot of ways where each other's fallback in case shit really hits the fan. And neighbors, we didn't even know that was an option. Mm-hmm. So, and 
30 years have gone by and we finally figured it out. Okay. Better than late, late than never. But you know, a lot of times people just don't realize that they have options and they just do what they think they're supposed to be doing. And there's a lot of um, dependency and fear that gets associated with that. And it can undermine resilience. You always got to figure in life, what are you going to do if anything that's that really supports you in life, what happens if that stops working or, or goes mm-hmm. away? I mean, yeah, I think the fear that you're speaking to is – I mean, almost universal, right? <laughs> if not totally universal. Yeah. And and yet I think that that's potentially one of the myths of your relationship has to look only this exact way is if I follow the rules, right? If I, you know, ride the escalator, then as a result, I am guaranteed security. I am guaranteed an answer to this fear. I am guaranteed never having to be alone. And obviously, like as we see, if we look around, that's actually not true, right? Like you can do Mm -hmm. all the things, quote, right, and still, you know, that relationship doesn't end up the way that you think, or you still wind up hurt, or you wind up alone, or any of the things that it's supposed to solve for you, I think is is not, it's not guaranteed. Yeah, it's not guaranteed. And it's not just, are you going to feel fulfilled as a person, as an individual and living the life you want to lead? A lot of people look at the relationship escalators and underpinning for society as a whole that you need to have this nuclear family model um, that is predicated on constraining what energy you're, you're willing to put into sexual and romantic connection. Because if you didn't, society would just fall apart. Nobody would care about the children. People wouldn't want to go to work. It'd be anarchy, cats and dogs living together. But, you know, the thing is, like I said, we're living in a society right now, especially where the social infrastructure is crumbling. And the nice thing about stepping off the relationship escalator is that it gives you a lot of different ways to connect with people in good, meaningful, and supportive ways. I, you know, a web is of connection is in a lot of ways, even though it's got a lot of holes in it, it's generally a pretty safe place to be. There's always something you can hold on to. If you're just holding on to one line and hoping that's going to pull you through, what happens if that line breaks? Mm -hmm. So then what do you say to folks who might be listening and thinking, yeah, I've thought this through and the more uh, escalator style relationship does feel like a great fit for me. A monogamy feels like a great fit for me. And also what you're saying does make sense of all the eggs in one basket versus the web, right? Like how do you think of it not just kind of as a binary, you're either on the relationship escalator or you're off it? Okay, well, let's just take monogamy as as a case in point. Again, monogamy is not monolithic. Negotiate about it. You know, whether you're at the beginning of a new relationship or or deeper in a relationship. Um, whenever you want something and you feel like that's really essential for you and, and you need to have it or or you would really hate going without it, it's always useful to say, why do you want it? What is that supposed to achieve for you? So with monogamy... Okay, if if that matters to you, cool. Why do you want it? What is that supposed to do for you and for your relationship, for your life, for you as an individual? And, you know, kind of parse those things out and then consider what other options do I have in my life to achieve those goals? That doesn't mean that you don't have to do monogamy. You can still do monogamy if you want to. It just means that you have a lot of ways to get at what you really want. And you know what? In the long run, that might make it easier to do monogamy. 
Yeah. I mean, I think clarity on the why behind any of our choices or desires is always really helpful because again, then it, like, even if you wind up doing the same actions, right? Like you said, even if you wind up having a romantically and sexually monogamous relationship, that knowing the why, knowing what needs you're trying to meet, like there's just, I don't know. I feel like there's more confidence that comes from like, I'm doing this on purpose because I've thought through these reasons versus like, eh, this is supposed to make me happy. I'm going to do this thing. Yeah, exactly. And then once you've thought that through, when you negotiate things in your relationship, you know what you're really negotiating for. Yeah. And if monogamy is part of it, really what you want, you can say, I want monogamy and this is why. Because uh, Sarah Perel, who's um, a psychologist who's written a lot about relationships, you know, has pointed out over and over that there are all kinds of betrayals in relationships you know, where people just get mean to each other or they are emotionally absent or, um, you know, there's there's just lots and lots of ways that people who are really close in relationships can betray each other. Yet we look at fucking somebody else as that's the betrayal. Well, what if that was preceded by years of abuse and neglect of various kinds? Mm -hmm. You know, so... I think focusing just on monogamy for its own sake for most people puts the cart before the horse. You can have a completely 100% monogamous relationship where both of you do nothing but make each other miserable. Mm-hmm. That's not the you know that that's kind of what is the point? What kind of a relationship are we trying to have? Don't use monogamy as a symbol when what you really want is something else. Make sure you know what you're negotiating for and why. And actively negotiate. Put forward what matters to you. Listen to what matters to your partner. And remember, they are people, just like you. They have their own hopes, goals, dreams, and they are subject to change, just like you. And negotiating, I like to think of it not as like a business contract, I tend to think of it more as negotiating things like negotiating a path. Uh, You know, it's like, all right, if I'm rock climbing, how do I climb up this wall? That's negotiating the wall. And um, think of it as an ongoing process. Not we're making a deal. These are the terms and you agreed to this and you shut up if you want to change it. You know, that's not negotiation. That's an ultimatum. And those things rarely go well. All they do is breed resentment. But being able to negotiate in relationships is the one thing that we are often deliberately discouraged from doing because since the relationship escalator has so much social support and, you know, you hear about in every love song ever written, it's on almost every TV show, you know, there are aisles and aisles of greeting cards about it. it. It can feel like it is carried along by its own momentum because it has all this external support. It's very important when you are making decisions about your own life and your own heart and that are going to affect other people and their lives and their hearts to think about what you really want and to sit down and have conversations about it, even if those conversations are are awkward or unromantic or scary. Mm -hmm. You know, and and people might react badly. (laughs) It's like, hmm, can we talk about monogamy and we, whether we really want to keep doing this? Okay. Your partner might freak out about it. Okay. If, when people are confronted with um, possibilities that are not what they were expecting and that might feel scary and strange, remember the way they react immediately might not react, how they'll feel about it and want to talk about it in a day, a week, a month, or a few years. 
So give people a chance to go through their own emotional reaction because the thought of stepping off the escalator can be terrifying for a lot of people. You got to have some compassion for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this subject of negotiating monogamy, that's the subject of your next book project, right? Yes. After I'm done executing this house purchase. (laughs) um, Yeah. I have been just uh, talking to a lot of people about it. It's, It's amazing to me how much people just assume that, well, Yes, we're monogamous now. Well, what does that actually mean? Does that mean that you can like find other people attractive even if you don't do anything about it? Does it mean you can masturbate? <laughs> does it mean you can uh, kiss other people? Does it mean you can um, go to cuddle parties? All these sorts of things where, well, different people do monogamy in different ways. And um, they can, it, it's not this one size fits all thing. and Figuring out what works for you at where you are in your own life and what's going on in your current relationship, being able to really talk about it tends to work a lot better than you did what? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, this idea even of like having the communication around it, I I feel like one of the things that struck me in just like your work and in thinking about this topic is how much stuff we sort of just these big things that we kind of take for granted and then don't really talk about and don't even really know where we stand and then just assume that uh, like we're on the same page as our partner with this thing we never talked about, right? Like what you just said, like is, you know, if you've assumed to have a monogamous relationship that, okay, like you said, does that, what does that mean? Does that mean you can flirt? Does, uh, what about, you know, watching porn without the other person? Like there's so many things once you start to like pick at those threads of like, oh, we never talked about that. And, you know, then hurt feelings or like you said, like, you know, feelings of betrayal or anything can come as a result of just not really having investigated that within yourself and communicating that. So I'm I'm interested with this idea of negotiating monogamy and the way that you framed negotiation. Can you get a little bit more specific of maybe like, I don't know, some of the questions you think are helpful to ask. I don't really know the scope of what this project is taking for you, but I'm interested just to hear like some more tangible specifics about what it looks like to negotiate monogamy. Okay. Well, part of it is um, a a trick that I pick up from my friends who are involved in various kinds of kink is, uh, you know, have, I'm going to have a few different checklists of basically what's in, what's out. Are are you allowed to uh, find other people attractive? Are you allowed to mention that other people are attractive? Are you allowed to have close friendships with people of of a gender or other presentation that are attractive to you? Are you able to enjoy your own sexuality without your partner there, whether through porn or masturbation? Um, are you allowed to have crushes on other people? So there's there's a whole bunch of things, and I'm trying to figure out how to make these checklists not too long and complex. <laughs> but you know, just uh, some of the, the things that might be real hot buttons for people. I, I just want to kind of go through and see what the numbers say of you know where people lie, what what's in and out, what what the correlations are. And um, a, another thing is. Again, getting back to the why we're monogamous, there's a big difference between 
I really only want to focus my energy, uh, you know, romantic and sexual energy on you. I don't want to have a whole lot of those kinds of relationships. I really just want to have one because I focus better as a person versus I own you. Don't you dare fuck anybody else because that violates my property rights. Mm. So, yeah, the idea of ownership in relationships. Mm-hmm. And let's not, let's not forget where legal marriage came from. This was never about romance and sunshine and flowers, at least not when the institution began. This was about an exchange of property rights. And that legacy, even though we have overwritten it, it's become layered with a lot of things that are really genuinely about love and connection and support and mutual partnership and respect. Those things definitely all part of of how many legal marriages work now. But the institution itself is rooted in a property exchange. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and so much I think of what you're saying, I mean, again, this idea of like not demonizing any kind of relationship, but being willing to ask these questions of yourself, of your, you know, partner or partners, I feel like leads to stronger relationships, even if you wind up following the same path, like going through just that list, right, that you said, the sort of checklist. And with those types of checklists, I don't even think that it needs to be all encompassing. It's like once you start down the path of, oh, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this thing? It can start to generate, right, like your own ideas of, oh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'm thinking of, I'm always adding more projects to my plate like I need that. But after I do the research, because, you know, I'm a journalist and I want to find out what's really going on, where people are really at before I start, uh, you know, giving anything that might potentially resemble advice is basically giving people a guide to having conversations about important aspects of their relationships um, you know, the kinds of, you know, discussion guides, basically, because I think a lot of people don't know where to start mm-hmm. with having these kinds of conversations. And you can kind of pick it up anecdotally by reading a blog post here or going to a discussion group there. Um, but I want to see what's going on, where people are at. And then uh, that might be another thing I do down the line. Like I said, like I don't have enough going on. But yeah. Well, no, but I mean, I think that's it's incredibly valuable. And it also seems as like to be like a foundational thing of all of these other projects, right? That you're working on, like the ability to have, you know, tough or hard conversations, or maybe they don't even have to be that way, but to talk about some of these topics, especially if it's if those types of conversations aren't something that someone's familiar with. Yeah, having some skills to do that sounds incredibly helpful. Yeah, it can be. And um, so we'll we'll see what happens down the line, but I just want to you know, get that next book Mm -hmm. out first. And, um, you know, also too, I think there's room for helping professionals, uh, therapists, social workers, um, attorneys, uh, you know, healthcare professionals, everybody who is involved with people's in some sort of intimate aspect of their life to understand and embrace relationship diversity. Uh, Because a lot of times, especially in those professions, they end up pathologizing and stigmatizing and poorly serving people who do relationships differently or who might be mostly on the escalator, but some aspect of, say, how they do monogamy or what their living arrangements are like might be a little bit different. Uh, And when that happens, people can suffer real damage in their life. What I would like, ideally, is to make it possible for everybody in general, but uh, especially 
people in positions of giving advice or having power to really understand that there is a diversity in how people do relationships and that this is a feature, not a bug, mm-hmm. that it, it's a good thing that we have lots of options for people to share love and connection and support in their life. So yeah, when, once I get past the, okay, what are people actually doing in their relationships? I'm probably going to be creating more material uh, toward that goal. Yeah. I mean, and part of what I've been thinking about too is sort of checking myself on a lot of my unconscious bias around this type of stuff. Like, oh, why is it, or maybe not why is it, but just noticing that, you know, if two people are married, like I automatically know what like box to put that in, right? Like makes more sense to me. I see that relationship sometimes is more valid than another relationship, not even because I necessarily like, believe that because honestly I don't, right? We wouldn't be having this conversation if that was my belief structure, but it's like, it's there, right? Like these types of biases, like noticing, I mean, it's the same reason, like the same way that you sort of check your biases and privileges with any other area of life, but to say, oh, okay, I, I, yeah, I am valuing this relationship is more serious or more important because they've moved in together, because they've gotten engaged, because this relationship is, quote, going somewhere, right? That, I don't know, there's Mm -hmm. like something in that that's been helpful for me of even like checking myself on like how I knee-jerk respond to other people's choices. Yeah, so you can, there are two ways to go about that. You can be kind and compassionate toward how you, um, you know, act toward others and try not to make a lot of assumptions and make it safe, basically, for people to you know, offer their context of, of, of their life and how they do relationships. There's that. Then there's the snarky Jersey girl within me that will sometimes do stuff like this. Oh my God, check out my new ring. We just got engaged. This is wonderful. That's great. What's going on with your other relationships? How are they going? Mm-hmm. Or, or, oh my God, I, we just got this house. That's great. That's great. And, and where's your partner going to live? Oh, that's not just your house. What? <laughs> right, like pushing back against the assumptions, yeah, yeah. Um, that doesn't necessarily make me part, you know, popular with people. But you know, I'm from Jersey. I got to do that shit sometimes. Um, but it's it, it. But the thing is, is that a lot of times people don't realize how this automatic enthusiasm for various steps on the relationship escalator, especially moving in together, uh, getting married, and having kids, or having an anniversary party, how kind of obnoxious and oppressive it can be for people who their relationship goals don't get celebrated that way. You know, it just kind of realize that not everybody wants to get married or thinks that being married is this wonderful thing and that not everybody is, uh, you know, should be obligated to celebrate that with you. Yeah, I mean, I know this this sounds kind of bitter and cynical, but, you know, unless you've been on it from the other side, you might not realize how obnoxious that can mm-hmm. be sometimes. Yeah. And and just kind of, yeah, I'm not saying don't tell people that you're excited about something in your life, but maybe consider whether you're assuming that everybody will be excited about this for you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I, I've had some conversations with um, friends, particularly female friends who are like single by choice and just the, a mm-hmm. lot of the stigma that exists there too. And just some of the languaging around like, it'll happen for you someday or that, you know, that type of stuff is like disregarding yeah. the fact that that's a totally valid choice to make. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're probably hearing this now too, when you tell people that you're getting unmarried, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It was actually like for me and Tom, 
no, this is a good thing. This is the best thing that could happen for our relationship. And it would, without us being poly and without us getting divorced, we would not have any relationship at all today, yeah. probably, because we would have waited until we ground that down, until we hated each other and blew it up and never talked to each other. Yep. Ding, ding, ding. I can relate to that so much. I remember the, the final conversation that we had uh, to sort of make this decision, because obviously we had hard conversations for you know well over a year before getting to this point. But the conversation of, OK, if we accept the like social norm criteria of the only reason to end or transition out of you know a, a marriage is that you're absolutely miserable, right? Then we'll mm-hmm. get there. Like if we have to get there, we'll get there. But why, right? Like why wait until we hate each other? Like we still love each other, right? And, you know, it's it's been interesting um, navigating people's reactions to it, right? Because like you said, the common reaction is like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And obviously I know that that comes from a good place. And I don't know, for me, I'm feeling this has opened up for me a lot of space and empathy around the fact that almost everything is more complex than just like a binary good or bad decision that like it's very much a both and, right? That it's the it's a good, right choice for us. And also I'm incredibly sad, right? And both can be true. And so just sort of navigating that, I think, you know, in, in conversations that I've had with folks who have been through similar things, like that that's really prevalent. Something can be the best fit choice and also still come with a lot of grief. Well, change is hard. I mean, even good change is hard. Like I'm buying this house right now. Okay, I know I'm going to be freaking out about it at some point. Um, it's it, it's it's the right thing for me to do. I'm going to like it once I'm there, and I know it's going to be the process is going to be wrenching. So some of some of the bad stuff that comes up is just a reaction to the process of major change. Yep. That's normal. Yeah, that's life. Okay, so then afterwards, after you get unmarried, if if you and your your partner or former partner you know, start, have a really great friendship. You're going to hear this. Oh, isn't it great that you and your ex are still friends? Okay. Fingernails on chalkboard here. It's like, okay, first of all, you know, and especially this, this pisses me off from people who get to know me well. Anybody who knows, who gets to know me even moderately well knows that there is no way in hell that Tom and I would not be friends. Mm -hmm. Okay. That, that's just not going to happen. And also that, He's not my ex. I only ex people out of my life who I don't want in my life anymore. I really dislike the idea of of ex being just a relationship ended. There are some people that I have kicked out of my life. They are exes. They and they are not sexual and romantic relationships. Some of them are for, former colleagues, some of them are friends. But you know, the the What's implied in the term X is that that is somebody who got cut out of your life. And that's often not true. I don't think it's a very useful term. And just the idea that that this is a related thing. Often people expect you to, when a romantic relationship or a marriage ends, that you'll exit each other's lives. And the reason for that is you got to make a clean break so you can clear the way for another escalator partner. And if you don't do that, nobody's really going to be able to love you. And I'm sorry, that's bullshit. I mean, if we've seen anything with the rise in divorce and, and blended families is that former spouses often do have very good relationships each with each other and they get into new relationships and they still have good relationships with the people that they used to be married to or in love with. 
that this is not really that taboo anymore if you look around about it. But a lot of times this is not really visible to people until after you go through ending a major uh, long-term intimate relationship like a marriage or, or something else similar to that. It's really kind of like stepping through the looking glass and the world is not the way you thought it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, un- it's, it's unsettling. Yeah, I can relate to that a lot. Um, one of the the things that, you know, uh, Paul and I are hoping to do um, is continue to host Thanksgiving together. That's something that we love and, you know, our favorite holiday and, you know, that type of stuff. And so our plan is to just keep doing that. And it's been interesting people's reactions to that, right? Friends who were like, but what's going to happen when you start dating someone else? Or what if you met someone who wasn't comfortable with that? And they're totally valid questions to ask, right? And all speak to sort of escalated relationships. And for me, I'm like, well, I guess I can't predict the future, but I don't think I'd be interested in a partner who wasn't okay with the fact that I'm always going to love this person and think of him like my family. I don't know, that would be a compatibility issue for me, but it's just people's reactions are really interesting. Precisely. And that's the same for me. Um, And, you know, people, good people who you get close to and are good in your life, they are gold and don't let go of them unless you absolutely really the relationship itself isn't working anymore. There is almost always a way to transition that relationship, how it works to keep those good people in your life. But like I said, we need all the all the love we can get in this world and all the connection we can get. Yeah, I like the point that you made both when you said that um, when you first came across the word polyamory, that that was really powerful for you and, you know, choosing not to describe Tom as your ex, right? Like this idea of language having a lot of power. I've thought about that too. Like the idea of describing him at some point as my ex-husband. I don't know why it makes me uncomfortable. It just does probably for all the reasons that you said because it just doesn't feel accurate. And also that it's, we can choose our language, right? Like you said, former spouse or person that used to be married to dear friend, you know, it's, it's up to you really to define your relationships and and choose the language that feels best. Yeah, it is. And be assertive about that because language is incredibly powerful. I mean, when I say former spouse or we got unmarried or, uh, you know, these are the things that almost always people stop me in the middle of that conversation. And they're like, Oh, unmarried. That's a really good word. Yeah, I like that. You know, or or the fact that, you know, I usually, if I'm trying to be nice, I usually don't correct them if they say ex-husband. But uh, I will, in referring to him in the conversation, I'll say, well, you know, Tom, we used to be married or my former spouse, Tom. And they're like, oh, I really like that. You can set such a great example with the um, words you choose to use, and don't necessarily. And in terms of being embracing relationship diversity and not creating stigma for other people, you know, if they're talking about uh, you know somebody that they used to be married to, don't default to saying X. Don't assume that this is somebody they don't want in their life anymore. Listen to hear what kind of words they use. Kind of how people are navigating the whole partner versus spouse versus husband and wife, you know, these words are actually very powerful. And um, just like with gender identity, it, it really helps to kind of listen for the cues for how people are, are explaining their own context and reflect that back to them. Mm-hmm. And it, it can be challenging because language ha- habits are really ingrained. You know, like not all misgendering is an act of malice, but it can really hurt people if you use the wrong pronouns for them. And just be willing to say, okay, sorry, I, I messed up with that. Um, let me try that sentence again. 
And people will generally react pretty well to that. Yeah. So obviously we're talking specifically about language, but, you know, uh, I guess taking a little bit of a broader perspective, what do you think we, I mean, I guess we, all of us can do to help make the world a safer, friendlier place for all kinds of love, which I think is really what we're talking about. Yeah. First of all, recognize that lots of different kinds of relationships exist and um, look out for ways in which you might be inadvertently stigmatizing people for doing relationships differently or for not having a kind of relationship that you think they should have. When are you going to get serious? Oh, you're getting married now? Or, I'm sorry, you're getting divorced. That's horrible. Or, well, when are you two moving in together? All these kinds of things that people do as small talk. It can be incredibly stigmatizing or even invasive. You know, if a lot of times, I mean, I'm self-employed, I work at home, but a lot of my friends who work in offices hate it that everybody's expected to talk about their relationships. It's a private personal thing. And don't think that somebody is being standoffish or weird just because that's a topic of conversation they don't wish to share with you. It's okay for people to not be out there about their relationships. And also too, if you know somebody is doing relationships uh, differently, and, and let's just take a less controversial example. This isn't about monogamy. Somebody who is single by choice, who prefers not to have any romantic or sexual ongoing intimate relationships. Remember to ask them about their friends because people who, especially are single by choice, tend to have very uh, strong friendships and they matter a lot with them or 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 whatever really matters to them, their ties to community or their kids, you know, because you don't have to be married to be a parent. That's for damn sure. Um, but ask them about the people you know. If you're close to them, ask them uh, sometimes about the people you know who are part of their lives, even if it's not somebody they're fucking. Mm-hmm. And this is especially important as people age, too, because I'm 52. And I realize that... Um, among the people I know, the, the ones who really stick by me are my friends. And I've had some people express concern, like, well, don't, you don't have anybody. No, I'm sorry. I have two sweethearts. They are wonderful men. Um, one is solo poly. The other is solo and, you know, kind of monogamous by default just because he doesn't feel like having any other relationships right now. That might change in the future. Yeah, so I have them. I have several very close friends. I actually have a pretty large family of origin, too, and I'm pretty close to my parents and my siblings. And uh, and I miss my dad a lot. He passed away this year. But or last year. Wow. It's last year now. But, you know, just remembering to honor the kinds of love that people have in their life, whatever they choose to offer about it. Don't assume that it is okay for you to ask about it, just like it's not cool to ask a trans person whether they've had bottom surgery, you know, unless they have explicitly offered to share that information. And, um, and don't, don't assume that news that they give you about their relationship is positive or negative unless they are providing other clues about it. If, some, yeah. if somebody comes to you crying that, oh my God, I'm getting divorced, even if they're crying about it, they might just be dealing with the, the um, impact of the change. It, they might still, if you talk to them, think this is the right thing to do and we're both going to be a lot better off in the process. So try to just tone down those value judgments. Oh, yeah. And, and screw this plus one shit. 
<laughs> a lot of times people with the plus one invitations, if if you want to go to say a wedding and instead of bringing your your spouse, bring a close friend if, if you happen to be monogamous or another partner if you happen to not be monogamous, all of a sudden you realize there's a lot of fine print about that plus one. <laughs> I've never thought about that, but so, oh my gosh, you're so right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, if you are extending an invitation and, and people are able to bring, you know, uh, other people, you know, in their lives, then, you know, say, yeah, okay. You know, bring your partners if you want. Um, if you can have like, you know, be flexible about the, how many people you accommodate for it or say you can, you can bring, you know, one person with you to the party, but don't give them any shit if they decide to bring another lover that, is, is not somebody that you have already been familiar with, like a, you know, another partner, if they're married or if they want to bring their best friend or whatever, you know, don't put those kinds of, yeah. Or even certain people get plus ones and certain people don't. Yeah. Being poly, I've certainly noticed that. And, uh, what I've also noticed being poly is there's a lot of invitations that I just don't get. What do you mean? Can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, this happens less often than it used to because I've gotten better about choosing my friends. <laughs> but in in the early years of being poly, I noticed that if friends were, um, especially if somebody's in a married couple and they're having a, a gathering at their home and, and they're monogamous, they would be worried about having a poly person there because it was assumed that I would be predatory. Hmm. That I would be there and basically poaching other people's partners. And sometimes this came from people that I had known for years. It was appalling. Yeah, that's incredibly disrespectful. Yeah, yeah. And a side note too, um, I had a friend who had been a very good friend of mine for years, and she still is. We got past this, but uh, there was a time when, you know, when I was poly and I'd, you know, been out to her for a few years about being poly. And, uh, you know, Tom and I were married at the time and we happened to be dating, uh, both people in another couple. Um, I was dating the, the, um, husband in that other couple and he was dating the wife in that other couple. And we were all friends and we hung out together. We would spend the weekends at like one house or another. They had two young kids and this has been going on for about three years. And, and, you know, it was, I mean, like any relationship, it was, it was bumpy at times, but it worked out really well. And she said to me in a conversation, well, that has to be bad for the kids. I just about leaped across the table and strangled Mm -hmm. her because it's like, how dare you accuse me of being unhealthy for kids? I have been nothing but supportive for them. Hell, I stayed up nights, you know, uh, helping with the the infant so so the mom could have a a good night's sleep, you know? So, yeah, don't give me that Mm -hmm. shit. But, um, But people will make those kinds of offhand remarks and not realize how deeply wounding they can be to people. So um, you're going to fuck this stuff up. You know, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make those kinds of remarks. When you do, uh, accept that you were wrong about it and apologize. It's so important. And we're, we're learning that now with racism, sexism, um, cisgenderism, you know, uh, and everything related to how people don't tend to fit into the, whatever might be the privileged norms of society, except that with relationship structure too. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of what you're saying 
is just about not making as many assumptions or any assumptions, right? And trying to continue to unlearn those assumptions and behaviors. Yeah. And just be willing to say, I'm sorry. I fucked that up. Let me try that again. God, it is, I mean, people's lives and families could have been avoided, uh, you know, blowing up if somebody had just been willing to say Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So one of the last things that I wanted to ask you, um, you know, since this idea of looking at, you know, what's important to us, what we value as far as relationships. And obviously this came up under the, you know, monogamy structure when you were saying, think about why that matters and why this is, you know, like an expression of that. I'm interested for you identifying as solo poly, how that is an expression of your personal values. Is that something you could talk about? Oh, um, yeah, uh, actually it's really interesting talking about values. Let me tell you a story about my dad. So my dad, uh, Jack, was, I'm fifth out of six kids, okay, Irish Catholic family. And by the way, we were a medium-sized family on the block, so that's kind of the culture I grew up in. And my dad was, when he had six young kids, was fed up with working for other people's businesses where he wasn't really appreciated, and he was really good at um, management and figuring out strategy. So he went in the 70s and became a self-employed management consultant. This was before fax machines, okay? Nobody was doing this. And he had a wife and six kids to support. And he did it. And he was really independent. And when I was around 11, I started uh, working for him with his business, mostly doing research. He would send me to the business library and have me researching, um, you know, different things about different industry sectors. And I got really good at it. And, uh, you know, I would get him the information he want. And I saw how he did his business and how he did his business was not alone. He always had very uh, skilled colleagues that he would pull together in teams for certain projects. And he would talk in depth with his clients and try to figure out what they really wanted and needed with their business and, and what was going wrong and, and where they wanted to get to. And, um, uh, and he would really take care of those relationships. And um, what I noticed over time was that he built a, a career that was far more resilient and resistant to recessions, by the way, than if he had had a full-time job with somebody. And he was a much better person and did a lot of good for people because of that. Um, so then I just kind of took that forward. And then in my own life, I you know went to journalism school and uh, became a journalist, and I would uh, see a, at the time the news industry was starting to implode, and I would see my colleagues uh, who mostly worked at newspapers freaking out because they didn't know how to work on their own. Whereas for me, I had always already grown up with the example of it's actually safer to be working on your own. You have more options that way, and you can keep things going. And in a lot of ways, it's safer than depending on one employer. And then. As I started to realize that, yeah, I'm not really good at this monogamy thing and I'm not really good at this living with people thing, you know, and as I I told my parents very early in in my journey in polyamory that I am poly, this is what this means. And I'm doing this, you know, for for these reasons and it feels right to me. And one of the first things that uh, my parents said to me is, well, we never expected you to be normal, but that's a good thing. and you know, they asked a couple questions to see if, 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 you know, this was giving me a life I wanted to, and they never gave me a bit of shit about it 
at all, ever. So a few years ago, before my dad died, I, you know, I told them I was publishing this book, and I elected it to publish it under my own name, Amy Garen, rather than under the pen name that I had used for writing about solo polyamory, which was Aggie Says. And I told my dad, okay, I have an unusual last name, and it won't be hard for anybody to figure out whose kid I am. And, you know, if anybody, you know, wants to know how you could raise a daughter who could write a book about this stuff. And, and you know, at, at, like I'm writing about something evil and unmentionable. I said, you're under no obligation to like the book or to read it. Um, you can hate it. You can criticize it if you want. And you are under no obligation to defend it. And you can uh, point all those people toward me and I'd be happy to talk to them on your behalf. And I said, given that, do you have any concerns about me publishing this book under my own name? My dad looked me in the face and he said, only if you don't finish it. Mm. And a couple years after that, um, when, you know, after I was done with the book and he read it, he, he said to me that it was hard for him to read because he thought he had raised me with certain values. I mean, coming from the culture that he did and the central role that monogamy played in his life, he and my mom actually had a wonderful marriage. And I have no reason to believe there was ever anything than 100% monogamous. And they were wonderful people and their marriage was great for, the, for them both. And, you know, it, he was concerned that I wasn't monogamous, that that was a values thing. He said, I thought I raised you with certain values. And I said, Dad, okay, I happen to be straight, but it's legal now, you know, for people to marry somebody of, of the same sex. If I were to tell you that I was getting married and I was in love and it was a wonderful person and she happened to be a woman, right now, who you are now, would you be happy for me? And he said, yeah. And I said, would you have been happy for me if I told you that 30 years ago? And he sat there and he thought about it. He says, I guess I've changed in ways I hadn't thought. Hmm. So long story short, yeah, um, the values that I've have of resilience, of autonomy, of connection, of care, of <laughs> just... Uh, generally being a geek and wanting to dive into things, me being solo and poly and egalitarian, I, I don't like it when people are discriminating against each other for bullshit reasons and putting people into boxes that, that doesn't work for me. All those things, the way I do relationships is the way I do my career and the way I do my life. And that works. Mm -hmm. And it's not what would work for everybody, but it's a good thing I'm not everybody because the world would be pretty damn unbearable if it, if it was. <laughs> uh, I think that's a really great place to wrap up. And I love that you shared that story. And I think it's, it's refreshing to hear you say, okay, these are my values. This is how that's reflected in my career. This is how that's reflected in my relationship choices, right? That this idea, it's so easy to want to compartmentalize. Like this is who I am at work and this is who I am here. And this is who I am here. And like, we're the common denominator in all of our things in our life and to hear you say, okay, I value resilience. I value autonomy. It's very clear from even just the stories that you've shared in the last you know, hour and a half that that's playing out in really intentional ways. Well, and let's not make a ju value judgment about that level of consistency, okay? Because there are some people who really do prefer to compartmentalize their yeah, lives. Yeah, that's true. In, in certain ways. And that's okay. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good check. It's fine. I'm going to be thinking about that. <laughs>
Because, yeah, I think that that could that's definitely potentially a value judgment. And I, I didn't necessarily mean that it's not OK to compartmentalize or to be different. But I, I don't know. I just hear a lot of integrity in what you're saying. And I think that's what was sticking out to me. Well, thanks. I, I, I've worked hard at it. And uh, it's uh, it, it's not something I didn't learn without a lot of face plants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I think that's a good place to start to wrap up. And the way we end these episodes is with a series of community questions. So basically all eight guests this season will be answering the same nine questions if you're down to answer nine random questions. All right, let's do it. What's something that you've gotten better at over the past year? Oh, um, financial management. I have a really great financial advisor and he's helped me figure out a lot of stuff I didn't really understand before. What's something that you have found challenging lately that you've been struggling with? (laughs) Financial stuff. Trying to figure out how to buy a house as a self-employed single person and I am just dreading the underwriting process. Yeah, so totally. Uh, Isn't it also funny how like the the same thing can be the answer to both questions? Like I've gotten better at this and also it's challenging. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a never ending process, but it's worth learning how to yeah. do it. So better late than Absolutely. ever. What's one thing that you love to splurge on when you can? Mm, concerts. I, I love going to see live music, live comedy. I, I will do it uh, wherever I can. A good friend of mine recently asked me, what kind of travel do I want to do? And it's like, yeah, there's some trips I want to do, but I live in Colorado. It's awesome here. I actually just want to go see a lot of good shows. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about a time when you failed at something, maybe something big, something small. What comes to mind when you think about failure? I had a very good friend who was extremely close to me um, for many years. And and, uh, I mean, I would tell her everything. She would tell me everything. It was really, really great. Um, At one point, she stopped talking to me. And I don't really know why. And I I don't assume it was all about me, but I know part of it had to be about me. And I fucked it up there and I don't have any way of knowing what happened or, um, or how to fix yeah. it. When you feel stuck, what's one thing that helps you to keep moving forward? Going for a walk is a good way to move yeah. forward. Actually. I agree. <laughs> Get away from my computer, leave my phone home and just go for a good long walk. Oh, oh also, and just talking to myself like a crazy person for some reason. that helps <laughs> What's one thing that feels really important to you right now? Maybe something we haven't talked about, but that you're spending time and energy on. Figuring out how to get out of my own way, how to not be so set in who I think I am. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to, to, you know, realize that, you know, I'm not just a person, I'm a process and I'm just trying to figure out where am I in that process. That's incredibly well said. I love that. So the next question is about books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? 1984 by George Orwell for two reasons. First of all, I read that when I was nine years old in the library in Haddon Heights, New Jersey. They wouldn't lend it to me because I wasn't supposed to read it. It really wasn't a book for kids. And uh, I started seeing New Jersey in a... uh, profoundly more sinister and probably more appropriate light. And plus George Orwell is just hands down one of the best writers ever. And uh, another one is, uh, it's whimsical and a bit of a cliche now, but um, Illusions by Richard Bach. 
it got me thinking um, very interesting things about the nature of reality and actually triggered my interest in physics, even though it wasn't in- intended mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Don't be a jerk. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> no, really, really. Because a lot of people, and the biggest way to not be a jerk is when you are a jerk, realize it, own it, and say, I'm sorry. Can I try that again? Yeah. Huh? That's, I, I never know what people are going to say to answer that question, but that's such a good answer. <laughs> so uh, a couple things um, that I'll put in. They're great questions. I love this. <laughs> a couple things uh, to put in the show notes. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah. Uh, the, the best way uh, is, first of all, if you go to the website for my book, um, offescalator.com, that's where I'm going to be publishing all my books. And uh, you can sign up if you're interested in what you're interested in is the books and, and that kind of stuff. Um, that's totally cool. You can also email me. Um, I use for the uh, for that a lot of stuff, uh, email that I had for when I w- was using the pen name Aggie Sesmore. So if you uh, just email Aggie at offescalator.com, that'll find me. And I use uh, Facebook, but I mostly use it for discussions and friends that, you know, people I don't know. I I do know. I I don't tend to friend people I don't know. I don't really use Twitter much anymore. And uh, yeah, so I know it sounds kind of old school, but damn it, I'm 52 and I get to be old school about it. Um, And then, uh, so for the new book project that you're working on, is it the same style as um, the first book where you're collecting survey responses? Is that something that folks could do? Yes. Yes. Uh, so for the negotiating monogamy book, I'm uh, releasing the survey that'll be out by the time this uh, airs. And uh, if you go to authescalator.com, you will be able to take that survey. And let's see, anything else? No, I think, I think, yeah. No. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. And um, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You, you've asked great questions. I mean, being an interviewer myself, I appreciate good interviews and you did a great oh, job. I'm so glad to hear that. Well, thank you so much for everything. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Rhea. Hi, Rhea. Hi. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions if you're ready. Yep, sounds good. What are you totally obsessed with right now? I am totally obsessed with my Diva Cup. My friend gave it to me like two years ago, and I was so scared to use it. And then last month, I was finally like, okay, I'm going to try this. And it's amazing. I wish I'd used it years ago. So um, I I have follow-up questions, but for anyone who doesn't know what a Diva Cup, will you share what it is? Yeah, it's like a reusable menstrual cup. And what were your concerns before you started using it? I was mostly scared about putting it in because I had friends that tried it and said it was horrifying. So that scared me a lot. And then I think just like not really ever having an experience with just like it being totally new and so different from what I was used to. 
Yeah, I I ask because I've literally owned one. This is probably going to make you laugh for two and a half years and have never used it. (laughs) Yeah, that's I I hear that so often. And now that I'm using it, I'm like, oh, my God, why didn't I do this so long ago? Yeah. Okay. Well, you have convinced me. I will give it a shot. (laughs) It's the best. I highly recommend. Also, there's lots on YouTube to watch. Even people like I mean, they like blur it out, but them like literally putting it in and they film it. Okay. okay. It's it's good to watch. Yeah, it's funny. Oh, the internet. The internet's so helpful. I love it. (laughs) Um, What's one thing that you have been awesome at lately? Brag a little bit for us. Um, I would say being as kind as possible to myself. Mm. I've been very motivated by Jamie, your friend Jamie, um, and everything she's posting on Instagram. Um, And just kind of being like, okay, this model of hating myself isn't working. It's not motivating. So what if I just tried loving myself and just doing things out of love? And it's been great. It feels really good. Yeah, I love to hear that. And obviously, I love her and I love her work too. So it's always nice to hear how many other people connect with it. Yeah. What's your go-to song when you need a mood boost? Ooh, that's a good question. Um... I actually just refound all my old CDs from high school, so that's been very fun. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, I would say just like anything upbeat. I don't know. Nothing's jumping out at me, but I, something good to dance to, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I love it. What's one goal that you're working toward right now? Well, I'm starting a business this year, so having a successful first year would be nice. And how do you define successful? Um, I would say busy enough to be able to live my life the way I want, to make enough money to live, basically. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, Last question, what's one thing that you have recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about? I think probably relationships. I'm in a fairly new relationship, and... I think I've met my person, but I I don't know. I mean, relationships are so difficult, and it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know. How do you know what – I don't know. Yeah, I I mean, I feel like I'm curious about everything. I wish people talked more about everything. But, <laughs> yeah, I'm also – I'm just curious on, like, different relationship structures and how people make it work and, like, what they are, you know, compromising on and not compromising on and sort of the ins and outs of things. Yes, I would definitely agree. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests each each season, for which I'm super grateful. And I would love for you to share two things. First, why you decided to support the show. And then second, what you love most about being in our community or if you have a favorite um, of the bonus content, anything like that. Um, I decided to support basically when you said like money has to come from somewhere and things aren't free. So that like really clicked with me and I was like, oh, duh, obviously people need to make a living. So after that, I was like, yeah, okay, done. Like I get so much value from what you produce. And so obviously you need to live and eat. So it just made sense. Yeah, I love the simplicity of that. I, I Doing this podcast has really changed how I think about like creative work and what's free and not free and right, like just kind of like where the money comes from for everything. 
Yeah, I think it's hard with the internet because so much is free, but especially when there's no advertising behind something, that is where money comes from. Mm -hmm. So when that structure isn't there, yeah, it has to come from somewhere. Yeah. And is there something that you have particularly enjoyed since joining our Patreon community? Yes, I love the Friday emails. And I also love the end of the month reflections with Julia. Mm, I love Julia so much. She's the Yeah, best. they're the best. Oh, they're so, so good. good to listen to. Oh, I'm glad that you enjoy that every time. I'm like, this feels like such like a comforting, like for me personally, I'm like having these conversations with her is so comforting and nice. So <laughs> I'm glad to hear how many people love them. Um, and do you want to share where you live and maybe like a social media link so people can say hi? Sure. I live uh, in the Comox Valley on Vancouver Island, Canada. And yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Left Coast Landscapes. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. That would be so much fun for me. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. <laughs>